Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. The last couple of weeks we have started a series in the letter of Titus. And the first week I challenged everybody to read this letter once a day for the next nine weeks. Um, and I was so bold because it's only two pages. Um, and I think many of you have taken the challenge on, and uh, hopefully you are enjoying this little letter uh, that Paul wrote to Titus a long time ago. He wrote it to Titus, who was a young associate of his. It's kind of like Paul's the mentor, apostle, leader guy, and he's found a lieutenant to leave on the island of Crete. In fact, this picture of the uh, lighthouse is from the Isle of Crete. It's in the Mediterranean. We actually have a map that shows us where it's at. But the person working the computer is talking to her mother. So, um. <laughs> We have a, a picture of the island. Or, Well, okay, uh, go to the map first, and then I'll get to that. I did things out of order. Crete's the little one. Uh, They're in the Mediterranean uh, Sea. It's beautiful. It's off the coast of Greece. And back in its day, and it's still a a favorite vacation spot of Europeans and uh, uh, and even folks from North America, uh, from around the globe, they travel to Crete for the hundred cities that compete for your tourist dollars. And they've been doing that for 2,000 years. There's beautiful beaches. It's a wonderful, beautiful place. And as I've been sharing, it it seems as we read about Crete, and today we'll we'll read a little bit more of the about the inhabitants, the people that live there. Uh, it seems that it was like Las Vegas on Hawaii. Yeah, let that one sink in. Uh, a very interesting place, a place that was uh, easily could have been called Sin City of its day, a place that was uh, full of every pleasure, every possibility, freedom, licentiousness, anything you want to do was available in Crete. What happened in Crete? Stayed in Crete. Except for the philosophies and the worldviews that were uh, regularly leaving Crete and going to the rest of the Roman world. It was a major trade center. Now, the, the picture that we just saw a moment ago, Bailey, if you could go to, back to that one. Uh, I saw this picture and I thought, you can't see it too well, but it's a, a castle under siege. And there's an army and there's uh, over on this side, there's a catapult that's... Uh, Uh, launching, burning things at the uh, people in the castle. Uh, There are siege towers and ramps that are making their way. And when you look at this picture, do you think of the church as the castle or the army? Uh, Do you think of the church as the castle or the army? And the reason I ask this is because Titus is a book that was written into a culture that was very hostile to the gospel, very difficult for churches to get started and planted in. And you could argue that America is becoming more and more like that. And many Christians today have this view that the church is the castle. And the culture and the pagans and the worldviews and the evil 
That's the army besieging the castle. But that is not the worldview. That is not the picture that the Bible gives of what the church and the people who make up the church is. If you remember, Jesus said when he was in Capernaum, he said, on this guy, Peter, and really what he's meaning, this man's testimony about who I am, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Last I checked, gates are not a moving object that you use to siege a castle. Gates are what you have on the front of a castle, on the front of a fortress. Jesus' picture of the church is an assaulting army upon the castle of Satan, upon the culture, upon all the evil and ill and ugly in the world. And so I want you to kind of lock away this picture or a similar picture of a a castle under siege. And I want you to understand that when Paul and Titus went to Crete, they were very much on the offensive. They were in hostile territory trying to take it back for Jesus. And that is what the church is supposed to be. It's what it's always been. It's what it's always called to be. It is not a building. It's not a specific day of the week. It's not a particular time of the day of the week. It is a group of people who are a movement. That's what you are, the church. As we look at this passage, we're going to see that Paul is now on the offensive. In fact, he's so much on the offensive, you might feel offended. He's so on the offensive, you might think, boy, those folks that he wrote this to must have thought, who is this guy? Now, as we look at this, and it almost feels like there's a cultural racial slur in this passage. I I hope that I can create an analogy, a modern day analogy for us that will help us to understand, I think, what's going on in this text what Paul is saying. Now, the first uh, few chapters, we are introduced to Paul. Uh, Actually, we're still in the first chapter of this short little letter. In the first part of the letter, in ancient times, they would tell you who they wrote it or who is writing it, as opposed to how we do it, where we tell you at the end of the letter. So if you get an 18-page letter and you don't know who it is, you usually flip to the back to find out who it is. In the old days, they had that figured out. They're like, let's just put it at the beginning. So Paul puts it at the beginning. He writes who's writing. He gives some authority as to why he can write what he's writing, and he tells us who he's addressing it to. He tells us it's to Titus, his son in the faith. And then he starts out, and we looked at this last week, the reason he left him in Crete was so that he could establish leadership in the churches in all 100 cities, because Paul understands that in an army, in an assault on uh, evil, on enemy territory, you need leadership. You need folks who are going to say, that's the hill we're taking, let's go. In fact, Hollywood gets this, right? Because every single war movie you watch, there's that moment where, you know, Braveheart, Mel Gibson, he's like rallying the troops and he's giving the the impassioned speech. You could almost argue that's kind of what pastors are trying to do every Sunday. Some of them don't do it well and they talk monotone and it's not really that exciting. Hopefully I don't come across that way, but you never know. It's a rallying point. It's like, we're going to take this hill. Let's go for it. 
And those are, you know, some of my exciting, most exciting parts of movies is when that happens. And Paul says, we need boots on the ground. We need leaders. We need people who are of great character because that's what the movement of Jesus is about, is creating people with character, people who look like Jesus. In fact, he started out the book by saying, truth that leads to godliness. Truth that leads to godliness. He says that in order for this movement to succeed, we need leaders who are godly. Or at least they're looking more and more godly. And then after this, at the very end of that phrase, at the end of that discussion, he says that they need to be, they need to hang on to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that they can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. And then there's this little word for in verse 10. And this is the passage that we're going to consider today, 10 through 16, for. And I want you to see that that for is kind of a causal for. Uh, He is saying that um, they need to refute those who oppose it. Because, because there are many rebellious people. He's saying that the leadership needs to be able to refute wrong, boneheaded teaching. Why? Because there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception. Especially, now he, he's going to tell you who his big thorn in the flesh is here, especially those of the circumcision group. Now, you might be thinking, that's an Old Testament word has to do with cutting stuff, right? Yes, you're right. And you might be thinking, I don't think that's a big problem today. Those of the circumcision group being folks that need to be opposed. I don't think that's the problem in today's church. And you'd be right. But in Paul's day, it it appears, and if you keep reading, he says they must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Just this past week in Christianity Today, there was a discussion about pastors and teachers of prominent churches who have used a company called ResultSource to get their books on the New York Times bestseller list. And they've used this group, which uh, the New York Times bestseller list only tracks individual purchases of books, not group sales, not big purchases. But what ResultSource did was that they would uh, buy like 10,000 or 20,000 books and make it look like they were individual book purchases. And so a pastor in Seattle, his name's Mark Driscoll, got into a little hot water because his book on marriage was on the New York Times bestseller list, and they used ResultSource to help them get it there. And the question was, yeah, everybody does this, because a lot of people do this, but is it okay to do this? Is it a bit shady? And then it pushes the question even more, why would you do that? Feels a tad mercenary, doesn't it? It doesn't seem like that's what a patriot would do. Well, they deflate footballs, but uh, <laughs> sorry, that was the football team, not the. <laughs> I 
Let's keep it Patriots mercenary as in, as in my analogy. You see, if a patriot would die for the cause, regardless, regardless of what's in it for them, they are willing to put it on the line, their life, their fortune, everything. They're willing to risk it all for the cause. A mercenary is in it for gain. And Paul is accusing this group of false teachers, those from the circumcision group. I'm not sure how you sell that, but they did somehow. He accuses them of these guys are mercenaries. They're in it for dishonest gain. They must be silenced. It's kind of a violent word Paul uses. He even it, It's like... Choke them out. Get duct tape and put it on their faces. Moms, you know how that feels sometimes, right? I mean, it's like Paul is saying, they must be stopped. They must be silenced. This is the rallying cry of this passage right now. And if you didn't know Paul very well, and if you're not a fan of Paul, I know some aren't, you come to this passage and you go, here's Paul being Paul again. Mean, cantankerous, nasty. How did he even get a church started? I don't even know if anybody personally liked this guy. I mean, when you read passages like this. And, and I think that as we read further, there's a little tongue-in-cheek going on. You see, one of the problems when you read somebody else's mail is you don't always know what conversations they've already had behind the scenes. You don't know if there was one of those little circle happy faces after he wrote some of this that kind of like joking, LOL, right? You know. And besides, if you're a parent or a grandparent, you may not know what LOL means. My mom doesn't. We are trying to teach her. You see, it's difficult when you read an ancient letter to pick up on the emotions that are in here. So you can read it one way, and it sounds like Paul is just really angry. <laughs> Or you can read it another way and kind of, yeah, he's upset, he's frustrated, this needs to be stopped, but hey, you know, Cretans are. Now, let's see how we're going to read this. For the sake of dishonest gain, verse 12, one of Crete's own prophets has said it. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. <laughs> now, if your new pastor comes to Ray and says, well, one of your own prophets has said, folks in Ray are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons, you're probably not going to stand that minister for a long time. If he comes and says that about Yuma, then you might be like, yeah, we like this guy. Right? Right? Now, now I'm not sure. Paul, I think, is... Is he trying to offend all the folks in Crete that he's trying to win to Christ? That doesn't make much sense. I uh, think that maybe what's going on is kind of like this ad campaign that they've been running for Vegas for a long time. In fact, uh, 12 years. You see, if you remember back in the 90s, they tried to clean up Vegas and make it family friendly. They tried to make it the next Magic Kingdom. And that's when they built like uh, the, 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 
hotel with the pirate show in front, you know, so you could watch the pirates and the kids would be like, oh, yay. And they built on all the strip with all the shows that were not risque and they had water fountains and light shows and all this stuff because they were trying to get families to come to Vegas. And then in about 2001, they realized this is not working. Families are still going to Disneyland. So they decided to embrace who they are. They decided to embrace the label of Sin City. And they came up with this marketing strategy based off of research because you know that they spend millions of dollars studying us, figuring out how we want to be told what to do. And this particular campaign, this particular research was saying that the thing that attracts people to Vegas is the freedom to be whoever they want to be, to do things that they would never dream of doing in Rayberry because there's gossip here. But in Vegas, and they came up with the catchy little phrase, what happens here stays here. What happens here stays here. And it's kind of like they embrace the idea that Vegas is this, is your evil, naughty little cousin, you know, that you like, but you know, if you hang out with him, you're going to be in lots of trouble. And they just decided to embrace it. And I'm wondering if... Here on the Las Vegas, on Hawaii, Paul is kind of, kind of doing the nudge, nudge, wink, wink with the Cretans. I mean, number one, for your city's ad campaign <laughs> to decide to embrace that, that already speaks a little bit about the character of the people living there. I mean, it probably doesn't speak for everybody living there, but there must be a lot of people that are willing to turn a blind eye to the behavior of really poorly behaved out-of-towners. It'd be interesting if that happened in Ray, how that would all go down. Boy, those folks from out of town trashed the hotel room, <laughs> showed up at, you know, I mean, it, it, you, it would get around, wouldn't it? But in Vegas, there must be a, a blind eye turned to some of this allow it to occur, to use it as your ad campaign, to, to draw tourists there by saying, we're Sin City, come on down, sin with us. And I'm wondering if that's what Paul is kind of saying here, that the Cretans are liars, all of them. I mean, one of their own prophets, one of their own writers said this, Cretans are liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. What happens in Crete stays in Crete. I mean, I'm, I'm wondering, maybe that's what he's doing here. Maybe he's trying to build rapport with the Cretans by saying this to them. Kind of like how I try to build rapport with Bronco fans by picking on Raiders. How I like to build rapport with folks from Ray by picking on Yuma. You see, my real rival is that man right there, Drew Lawrence. Because he went to Heritage. Nothing good comes out of Heritage. But if I tell you that, you don't care. But if I say Yuma, oh, yeah, right? Everybody, yeah, we can get all crazy about that. But if I say Heritage High School or Rappo High School, you're like, I don't care. Before him, it was Lynn Clapper. She went to Cherry Creek High School. I hated Cherry Creek High School. Lynn was okay. I think what Paul is doing is he's trying to build rapport somewhat with the new leaders in Crete by saying... 
<laughs> you're going to have a really hard job because you're living in Sin City. I mean, because Cretans are all liars and evil brutes and lazy gluttons. And they're like, yeah, we know exactly what you mean. That's how the folks are around here. I'm wondering. I'm wondering if that's what he's doing. And then he goes on. Therefore, actually he says, he has surely told the truth. I mean, he he affirms, yeah, this is true about them. Then he says, therefore rebuke them sharply. Rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith. The reason for the sharp rebuke is so that they might see the error in their way and come to have correct faith. It's not just to argue for argument's sake. It's not just to, you know, I'm going to have better arguments than them so I can beat them up and make them look foolish and stupid. It's so that they might repent and turn to have a better, more informed, correct faith. Sometimes Christians get caught up in that, don't we? We read books, we watch movies, and we just want to argue with people. We just want to win the argument. And Paul says it's not about winning the argument. It's about saving these folks. Now, don't misunderstand. He says rebuke them sharply. Get after it. Speak truth. And truth is sharp and hurts sometimes. But the reason is to restore these people. Then he keeps going on. So they will be a sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. I think there he's just addressing some of the, the stuff that they're teaching. Jewish myths and human commands. That never happens in churches though, does it? Myths and human commands. (laughs) I remember when I first quit wearing a jacket and a tie. Some people had to come to church to see that. What? You mean he's breaking the command of God? No, it's not a command of God. It's a human idea of how to look nice on Sundays. Jesus never wore a suit and tie. The women hadn't invented it yet. Right? And the women hadn't worn high heels because the men hadn't invented those. I mean, I think that's how we're getting at each other in fashion is that way. You see, the church is full of legalistic rules. Oftentimes it's like, oh, don't do that. Oh, don't say that. Oh, you can't be like that. And it's like, where do we get all this stuff? Because it's not in here. It's like we make up all this stuff and we're busy with our gospel of sin management that we forget what the gospel says. Do you know what the gospel of sin management says? The gospel of sin management says, you better shape up or ship out. You better clean up. You know, you can't show up at church until you have your act together. You know what? Until you get it all figured out, you shouldn't try to share things with people. You know what? You're just not cutting it. Sometimes the gospel of sin management sounds like this. Oh, good Lord, look at her. The gospel of sin management is muttering and judging. 
And God forbid this church would be like that. A church should be a place where freedom is exercised. (laughs) See, that's the funny twist in this whole thing. Sin City is not freedom. The gospel and what Paul is bringing to Crete will bring true freedom to the people. Behaving however you want and getting away with a couple things one night or a couple nights or a weekend is not freedom. You are a slave to sin. I dare you not to do it again. And you will find that you keep returning to it. Because you need a supernatural power inside of you that enables you, that strengthens you, that guides you, that's transforming you to true freedom. Paul says, don't get caught up in human commands. Sharply rebuke those who perpetuate human commands. It's actually one of my favorite things to do. And it's in the Bible. So I feel pretty good about that. Now, if we continue and read really quickly. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupt. They claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. They are detestable disobedient and unhit, unfit for doing anything good. Ugh. Ouch. Paul's on the warpath. Now, why? Why would he be on the warpath against some false teachers? Why would he be on the warpath against people who are busy peddling legalism, busy peddling human commands, busy talking about some secret Jewish myths? Why would this make him so upset that he rants and raves and says, the first order of business for your new leaders is going to be to sharply rebuke these people? Why would he get so upset? Maybe he really had a bad cup of joe this morning. I think if we understand why Paul is so upset, it'll help us to understand why this passage is so important for the church today. I think one of the things that he's upset about is is that it's undermining the very community of the church. See, one of the things I was wondering, what's the difference between a community and a crowd? What's the difference between a community, a group of people who are a community, like a community of faith, and a crowd? Well, the the big difference between those is that the community has shared goals, shared ideas, shared vision, shared truths. A crowd just is there. It's just assembled. I mean, there's crowds that happen all the time, and half the time people don't know why the crowd is happening. Hey, there's a lot of people. Let's just hang out. And Paul is saying that these teachers are undermining the very foundation of the community. He takes it so seriously. In fact, it's really interesting because uh, P, uh, Christopher Hitchens was a prominent atheist. He died, uh, I think, last year. He wrote a book that was called God is Not Great, Why Religion Poisons Everything. 
And Hitchens was on a book tour. He was going around the country. He was being interviewed by many different people. He was in Portland. He was interviewed by a gal named Marilyn Sewell. Marilyn Sewell is a Unitarian minister. The thing about Unitarians you just need to kind of remember is that Unitarians are so unified they forget everything. And she says this. The religion you cite in your book is generally the fundamentalist faith of various kinds. I'm a liberal Christian, and I don't take the stories from the Scripture literally. I don't believe in the doctrine of atonement, that Jesus died for our sins, for example. Do you make a a distinction between fundamentalist faith and liberal religion? Now listen to Hitchens' answer. Because Hitchens understands this better than most Christians today. He says, I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah, and that, and remember, this is an atheist, and that he rose again from the dead, and by his sacrifice, our sins are forgiven, you're really not in any meaningful sense a Christian. That's an atheist, sharply rebuking a Unitarian liberal Christian. You see, Hitchens understands that there's a difference between a community and a crowd. And a community has a common faith, and it has a common understanding, and it has a common truth. And Paul is saying that in order to continue this, we have to rally around the faith, around the truth, around the essentials of our faith. You see, what Paul is telling us is that doctrine and truth matter. In fact, I had a seminary professor and his favorite thing he told us was, what you believe about God is the most important thing about you. Now, I was in seminary and I'm expecting to hear that. I've been out of seminary for nearly 16 years. And I believe that it's more true what he said today than when I first heard it. I I really think that it is sinking into me that what you and I believe about God is the most important thing about us. I mean, just watch the evening news. That's what Hitchens was trying to say. What people believe about God, how they act out in this world is really important. Now, he chose to believe there was no God. And that was the most important thing about him. So what about you? What do you believe about God? What do you believe about the person of Jesus who in the scriptures claims to be God? What do you believe about the Holy Spirit and the idea that the scriptures teach that the Holy Spirit, the very power that rose Jesus from the dead, resides in his people? What do you believe about God? And do you feel that it is something that if it is challenged, if it is undermined, Heaven forbid, if I ever spoke heresy, it would need to be sharply rebuked. Do you believe that? See, Paul says that truth matters. And this is why this is so important today, because our culture is so busy saying, hey, whatever is true for you, man, 
It's like we're all from California all of a sudden. Whatever works, man. Whatever works for you. Ah, dude. (laughs) These are our brilliant philosophers now. Truth is relative, man, except for the saying that it's all relative. That's true. (laughs) This is what you get when marijuana is legal in Colorado. (laughs) This is the logic. This came about long before that was legal. But is there truth or not? You see this in our politics. It's like average Americans are tired of thinking. It's like we just go, oh, yeah, this guy's right. Because in 30 seconds, he convinced me that this person's evil. Seriously? I mean, watch political ads and just tell me if they encourage you to think deeply. Listen to most preaching today. Read most Christian books today and tell me, do they encourage you to think deeply? Do they encourage you to exercise your brain? You know that thing that God said, love him with it all. See, we want it easy, and I'm right at the front of that line sometimes. You know, where does the Bible tell me how to deal with my three kids? Where does the Bible tell me how to deal with my wife? Where does the Bible tell me how to be healed from this problem in my life? Where does the Bible tell me how to make $10,000 quickly? Where does the Bible tell me? And we're busy flipping through it, looking at it as a dictionary or an encyclopedia or an answer book or a handbook, and it's meant to be meditated on and thought about and permeate us and change us. We want it quick and easy. You know, really, the worst, my, the worst invention for all Americans is the microwave. Because we just want it now. I'm halfway to 90. And my spiritual growth None of it has happened quickly. It's all slow. It's all behind the scenes. And it's all evident in how Paul wrapped up this passage. Doing good. Obedient. You see, sometimes the church is so interested in bodies, bucks, and bricks. And we don't pay much attention to the character of the bodies giving the bucks, sitting inside the bricks. And the scriptures say that the measure for a church is the character of the people. That is, that is how I will one day be judged by God. That scares me. It's a lot easier to get a crowd than it is to form a community. May we form a community of faith around the essentials of the truth. May the Holy Spirit guide us in knowing what those essentials are. May we sharply rebuke those who stray.
And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. May God raise up godly leaders who guard gospel truth. Amen.